0: Hi, Guy Kilty here. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Thanks to everybody who's listened to the podcast so far and who's liked and subscribed to it on their podcast app. More of the same, please, if you haven't done that already, please like it, please subscribe it. It all makes a big difference. Uh, This episode is all about Tessa Cook. She's the co-founder of Olio. Now, Olio is a smartphone app which connects neighbours and local businesses so that they can share surplus food rather than than see it thrown away. Uh, Since its launch in North London in 2015, it's now being used by hundreds of thousands of people in more than 30 countries. Now, Tessa's got a fascinating story before starting Olio. She lived on the family farm in North Yorkshire. She went on to study at Cambridge and Stanford, enjoyed a really successful business career before starting this business. Um, And in this episode, Tessa explains how she learned loads about entrepreneurship by watching the way her parents worked on the farm, how she suffered from imposter syndrome in her career, and also how she worked on loads of different company ideas before experiencing the light bulb moment that led to the creation of Oleo. I don't always do this, but I thought it'd be good to start uh, with you right at the beginning because I saw that you grew up on a a farm, and obviously that, I'm guessing, informs part of what you're doing now. But just tell me a bit about what that was like, where it was, where you grew up, and what that was like.
1: So, yes, you're right. I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in North Yorkshire, so our nearest town of Scarborough. Um, And it was really just sort of my mum, my dad and my two brothers. And we lived and worked there pretty much 24-7. So growing up on a farm is amazing. You are outdoors, you're with the animals. Never say you're bored. Never watch TV. Um, So it's very fun, but also it's a lot of hard work. It's a family business. Everyone has got to pitch in. So Christmas Day, for example, is one of the days where we all had to work hardest all day long. Um, And so there's no no such thing as a holiday, really. What was that on on Christmas Day, then? Well, you have no one else on the farm to help you, but all the animals still need feeding. um, And the cows still need milking. So you can't take a break from that sort of
0: stuff. So was it a particular type of farm?
1: Yeah, so it's a dairy farm. And then my mum also had... Uh, free-range pigs, a rare breed of pigs called Oxford, Sandy and Black. So she built a a business with that as well.
0: And was that farm sort of in the family or was that something that your parents took on?
1: Um, So my parents bought the farm when they got married, when they were 22 years old. But my dad's family forever and ever uh, have been farmers.
0: And so when... um, So did you enjoy You enjoyed growing up on the farm, I'm guessing, Uh, from what you're saying?
1: I loved it. It was a very... It was a very unusual upbringing, um, so it couldn't necessarily. I guess lots of things that happened to me during my school holidays were not the typical things that happened to other kids during the school holidays. Such as? Well, I mean, you know, I I never we never got to watch TV or go to the movies or um, things that kids might sort of more conventionally do. Instead, we were carving cows, um, <laughs> moving <laughs> pigs from one building to another. Um, trying to catch chickens, you know, those, those sorts of things.
0: And Did you ever see yourself carrying that on as an adult? Or were you always... Was it something that you didn't necessarily want to do when you grew up?
1: Yeah, so I loved the farm, but I never wanted to become a farmer. No, that's for sure. Um, Why was that? Gosh, that's a good question. I think I, I enjoy being surrounded by people a little bit more um, than when you're on a farm and um, I think I've always been very very just intellectually curious about the world and the world more broadly and so through my education that sort of naturally took me off um, down that route but I've always been someone who loves the environment is very passionate about the environment um, and I guess I've, I'd never thought of business necessarily. I didn't really know what business was or even entrepreneurship was, which is sort of what I'm doing now as a kid. But when I look back on it, actually, that is what my parents were doing. It just wasn't called that.
0: And so, yeah, you, what was it, do you think then, that you, in terms of looking back now, the sort of entrepreneurship that they were showing you at the time, what was it specifically, do you think?
1: Well, I, from a very early age, there was no distinction between work and leisure time when you live on a farm it's just a way of life and a way of living and that's the same for me now as someone who's founding a startup there isn't this concept of sort of working or not working it it just is part of your life it is a bit of an obsession it's a kind of a, a missionary thing
0: was it like that for your parents
1: well it's sort of it had to be almost by definition so farming is honestly one of the toughest toughest jobs out there, um, or lifestyles out there, uh, it's absolutely relentless and brutal. You have no control over all of the key variables of your business. So, you know, the weather mm. and um, sort of the harvests and and the the prices of your inputs, the price that you can sell the milk at. These are all things that other people control, and yet you've got to try and sort of manage all of that and and survive. Um, and so, we were very aware through our childhood that. Farmers were going out of business left, right, and centre around us. We we're very aware that farming is an industry that has the one of the highest rates of depression and, and suicide. So it it's it's a tough, tough industry.
0: Did your parents were they encouraging to you to do something else, or were they would they have been were they encouraging you to to carry on um, with
1: the farming? So no, my my parents have always been quite sort of laissez faire actually about what us three kids wanted to do so we were very self-directed and and sort of picked out our own path so my so i'm the eldest and then my next brother roger he he's taken over the family farm so he went away to university but it was very clear that he was always going to want to go back and and become a farmer and, and he's now doing that with his with his wife um but no there were no pressures or expectations on me at all it was my own path to pick
0: and so talking about picking that path then, what were you yeah. What were you really interested in at school and what did you really enjoy then at that stage, you know, in that sort yeah. of young, those young years, teenage years or even before that, what were you yeah. really enjoying doing?
1: Um, I didn't have a particular passion actually as a kid and I can remember I, I f- used to find that quite frustrating because everyone used to ask you what's your passion and what do you want to be when you grow up and I would say I don't know and I don't know um, and that was difficult. But actually, what, what I enjoyed was variety and doing new things and setting myself challenges. So at school, I did both arts and sciences. For A-levels, I had to choose between the two of them. And I ended up choosing sort of more on the arts side. Then when it came to university, I, a teacher of mine actually told me about this course at Cambridge called Social and Political Sciences. And I read the description of that and I immediately loved it and it was the first thing I sort of got really excited about. What what was it about it that you loved? It just felt so relevant to everyday life. So my other subjects I was studying at the time were English, were history, were economics, which I enjoyed all of them and I did really well at them, but I didn't get truly excited about them. But social and political sciences at Cambridge was studying sociology, social psychology, social anthropology, politics, philosophy and all of those subjects are just tackling really big issues, really big questions about humanity and the world and where we're going and, and trying to process things and make sense of things. So that just appealed to me.
0: And was going to Cambridge something that was always on the cards for you? Was it always something that you thought you could do? Or was that something that was a, an aspiration that came true, but you weren't necessarily (laughs) sure that would happen before? You're asking all these difficult questions I've never really thought about. Um,
1: So I always did well at school, you know, being very honest with you. I um was kind of an A uh, student and was very conscientious, and worked very hard. And I think I always, but because I was brought up on a farm and so with fairly limited access to role models, perhaps, and other ways of living and working, I didn't have much of a view as to what I could do. So I, in reality, probably just... Did whatever was defined as successful for me. Mm. So at school, um, success was you have to do well in in your exams. So I went and did well in my exams, and then the teacher said you should apply to uh, Cambridge. So I I, I did. Um, and it's only kind of later on in my life that I've really had the confidence and also the experience to understand what I am actually really passionate about and what I really want to do with my time.
0: So what was that transition like from? you know, living on the farm yeah. to going to Cambridge.
1: It was a pretty wild <laughs> transition. I mean, I can remember just being absolutely awestruck for weeks. Um, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and you're just at every turn you're reminded about the incredible history and all the phenomenal people that have been there before you. So it was very humbling. Um I definitely suffered from, I didn't realise there was a name for it at the time, hmm. but I've since learned there's this thing called imposter syndrome. Right. Definitely suffered from that, was convinced that they would find out that really I wasn't clever enough to be there and uh, I, would, I would be kicked out or something. But um, no, it was, it was a, a big, big adjustment, but it was a really great experience.
0: And how did you do once you, did you get over that sort of imposter syndrome or was it always I there? did,
1: no, I, I, I guess I sort of time helps normalize things doesn't it when you're sort of still there a year later you think oh maybe i've got away with it (laughs) (laughs) um so and i I did actually um i worked i worked hard there so i got a first um which i was really really proud of just got it Hmm. but um yeah and but i i left cambridge still none the wiser really for what type of a life i wanted for myself uh and what to do and In the same vein that I'd ended up at Cambridge, uh, sort of the definition of success at the time when I was there was to go and get a job uh, as a strategy consultant. And there was all these strategy consulting companies that would come around and do the milk round. And so I applied for a couple of those positions and got a job with Boston Consulting Group, which I rationalised at the time was a great choice for me because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And what better to do if you don't know what you want to do, then go work for a consultancy Mm. who will give you exposure to all sorts of industries, all sorts of different functions within those industries. So um, plus it it, um, paid well, so it could help pay off some of the student debt. (laughs) So it made sense on a lot of levels.
0: Did you have any aspirations at that point or you thinking about at that point doing stuff for yourself or was it more about... This was the path after university, you go out and get a job.
1: Yeah, it was definitely after university, you go out, you get a job, you need to provide for yourself. Um, And I think at that point in my life, I was very risk averse and didn't, I didn't have any real, as I said, role models and I didn't necessarily have that much confidence. So whilst, although, so I, I was very clearly following quite a conventional career path, but even within that if i would see something that wasn't working or see a problem that needed to be solved i would sort of crack on and, and and do that so um you know when i was at cambridge my college didn't have a yearbook and i thought this was just ridiculous every other college had one so myself and um, two other people decided right let's let's launch our own yearbook we fundraised for it we pulled it together we edited it produced it Um, etc and similarly sort of throughout my career I think where I've seen I have naturally gravitated towards problems and I get excited solving problems.
0: Okay so that's a little insight there I guess into how you've progressed to to doing Olio yes Um, you know at this point now but I guess the early stages so what was it like when you you know those first uh, couple of years working you know for boston consulting what was what was that like what we what sort of projects were you involved in
1: so i was involved in a whole variety of projects so i worked on the merger of glaxo and smith and um was responsible for merging their r d processes about which i knew absolutely nothing <laughs> that sounds like a lot of responsibility for someone it was a lot of responsibility of university. but um you learn in consulting i think people who go into consulting are naturally incredibly inquisitive and it's just your job to learn as quickly as possible and mm. to ask the right questions. And you quickly learn through consulting that there's no such thing as a dumb question. And actually, it's often the questions that seem dumbest, like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, yield the most uh, insight and, and light. So um, worked on a global expansion strategy for a soup company. So learned all about wet soup and dry soup and ambient <laughs> soup and stuff like that. <laughs> worked uh, in financial services to help launch one of the first uh, banks offering online banking services to their customers uh worked for the irish government to see if and how they could get rid of checks from their economy and move to a, a checklist economy
0: so, wow, so a wide variety
1: wide variety yeah
0: and then so you were there for a a bit, I think, maybe three, three years. And it yeah. was it Emap then that you went to? So yes. what what was that job, and why did you make the move then from one to the other?
1: So whilst I enjoyed being a consultant, sometimes <laughs> um, I I don't know it it just it it reached the point where I was just sort of sick and tired of producing PowerPoint presentations for other people, not actually doing anything with it. Um, and it was hard. You felt quite disengaged from the work that you're working on. So at that time, it was in the uh, in the year 2000, and it was the dot com boom, first time round. And someone who was very senior at EMAP went to work for a company called EMAP, which at the time was a FTSE 100 media company, and they had allocated, I think, two or three hundred million pounds to set up EMAP Digital. Mm which was to digitize all of their media portfolio. And he recruited me to join him in this new division. And my first role was to head up a joint venture between uh, EMAP and Channel 4 to create a new brand in the teen digital space. And how did that go? Um, I learned a lot about when joint ventures are and aren't appropriate (laughs) Uh, and I learned the importance of having a core idea and to be solving a real problem and the reality retrospectively for that joint venture was that it was a joint venture that made sense on paper but actually then translating that into a product there wasn't anyone in the business that had a clear product vision as to what we were delivering so the reality is actually uh, I think money was spent Unnecessarily, and we ended up winding winding that down.
0: So, what were the other titles that were in the sort of eMap? Uh, oh, you know, stable at F-H-M, that time. FHM,
1: L, Mojo, Q, Smash Hits, um, Kiss, Kerrang, The Box.
0: So he's getting all of those online. Really, was yeah. the was the idea? And yeah. it, I mean, I actually worked in the. Um, I used to work in computing, doing programming, in sort of between ninety. Nine and 2002 when it was all oh, yeah. kicking yeah. off with that kind of stuff as well and I remember it was just it was it was just a, a crazy time where it anything was, yeah. went really and yeah. nobody knew what to do no in terms of what was the best way to get say FHM online no so how did you can you think when you think back how do you how did you approach what was then an unknown thing to do
1: well I don't think I have any answers through what we did through that experience. Um, I have more reflected on what we didn't do. Um, And this is now something I've really sort of taken with me throughout my career, um, which is that every single business or every single opportunity that you want to pursue has to start with the problem. What problem are you solving for who? And if you can't answer that really, really clearly and authentically, then you sort of shouldn't progress and invest any more money beyond that. Um, and, and that's a mis- that's a mistake actually, that I see lots of entrepreneurs actually make today. When you ask them, you know, of so what's your business, or what are you doing? They immediately leap into talking about all the features that their amazing product has but they haven't provided any context in terms of what is the problem this is solving for whom and you know and then obviously how are you going to make money off the back of that
0: so it's filling filling a need i guess is that yeah. another way of yeah cuz yeah. it's not every well all i mean is when, it's not always about a, a problem is it is it more about something that has to be something that someone needs
1: it, yes exactly is that so, right? so it's a, it's a, it's Often it's solving a problem or a pain point, but Mm. the the flip side of that um, and where a lot of the sort of, I guess, unexpected innovation takes place is uh, when you are not solving a known need, but you're giving people something that they don't know they want. And that actually was something else I learned through EMAP. EMAP always would say that we were giving our readers something they didn't know they wanted just before they wanted it. And, Can you give an
0: example of that?
1: Oh gosh, I don't know, but modern day examples of that would be Twitter for example. No one was sat there thinking gosh, I really wish I could communicate in 140 characters. Mm. But they were tapping into something sort of quite profound and quite human about the desire to communicate and to connect with like-minded people and to have a discourse and um and they so that was an opportunity.
0: Yeah, it's spotting a gap in the market, I guess, yeah. isn't it that whole idea yeah. of yeah, people giving some people something that they then use, make, get great utility out of, but they didn't realize they were going to use it beforehand.
1: Yeah. But it, even those opportunities, you have to sort of unpick them a little bit and get back to the root causes. And because it's very easy to kid yourself that this might be an opportunity because you think it's great you have to understand but are there enough other people who also think that this is an opportunity and you can only understand that by saying well what are the core human needs that i'm fulfilling through this
0: is this about the time when you were doing this that you did the you did an mba is that right was that around I did. this time
1: yes um
0: at stanford is that right
1: yes i did yes So I had been offered the opportunity to go to business school when I was at BCG and I started the application process and in particular the Stanford um, process was was quite arduous and you had to convince an admissions committee why you wanted to go to business school and as I was writing all those essays I realised that I couldn't even convince myself why I wanted to go. I was just doing it because that's what everyone else so had you gone doing. to
0: one of these interviews at this point uh, no or? this was this was all written applications oh, written okay
1: yeah uh, and so actually I said you know what I can't if I can't convince myself that I want to go to business school I'm sure as heck aren't going to be able to convince an admissions committee um so this is probably a waste of my time so I even though that was the expected thing to do at that time when you're a consultant I said no I don't want to do this and actually I want to continue being a consultant but sort of grow my career without going to business school
0: why was that then do you think that you
1: well i felt that i had only just come out of university two years before i spent three years studying 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 uh and i was just wanting to be in the real world and doing real world things And the last thing i felt that i wanted to do was to go back and study again and, and retrospectively actually I, I did end up when i was at emap applying to go to business school now at that point I understood where I wanted to go because EMAC was going through some real difficulties and I was lucky enough to be working kind of directly with the CEO and CFO at the time and seeing all these parades, you know, advisors sort of parading in, <laughs> advising on this is what you should do um, with regards to marketing or sales or financial re-engineering or blah, blah, blah. And I can remember thinking, gosh, I don't ever want to be in a position where I don't fully understand all of the elements of a business that I'm working in and and sort of dependent upon advisors that you don't necessarily know whether you're getting good or bad advice or not and so that was what triggered me to think now is the right time for me to go back to business to go to business school and I found that through my experience at business school being a little bit older and have had more real world experience I was actually able to get a huge amount of value out of business school that i don't think i would have got if i'd gone earlier because i had all these real world contexts so you'd hear some theory in the classroom and you could actually relate to it and think how it might work and how it might apply yeah, use your past experience to, yeah, exactly. to work out how that would be
0: applicable yeah. yeah so was that full-time you did that then or was that
1: it was yes yeah. so i um was lucky enough to get into stanford uh i think the year that i applied it was just after the dot com crash so everybody was applying to go to business <laughs> school uh, and i think sort of seven percent of people who applied got in why,
0: when you say everyone was applying why well
1: because they didn't have jobs <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, let's let, let's let's go sit sit this market out and, and go go to business school um so I was, I was very very happy and very fortunate to to get into business school and managed to persuade uh, EMAP actually that they should help finance that because obviously I wasn't going to be able to finance that myself.
0: How much uh, did it cost at that time?
1: Oh God, Uh, you know, two years would have cost you north of 100,000 which clearly I didn't have. (laughs) So Um, what was that
0: experience like then at at Stanford?
1: Well, that was, again, it it was amazing. I'd never lived uh, overseas so moving country all by myself i still felt quite young and inexperienced in the world so i kind of remember landing and sort of marvelling that i'd managed to even get myself there um again suffered from imposter syndrome because it felt like every other person had sort of won an olympic gold medal or (laughs) founded a company and floated it and and i hadn't done any of the above uh but it was It was a great opportunity to take a couple of years out to learn and I was learning because I wanted to learn, not because that was what was expected of me. So it was a very, very different experience and everyone was there, not because their parents had told them to be there or because society expected them to be there. They were there because they wanted to be there. So it created a very different dynamic, very interesting, diverse group of people from all over the world and an opportunity to have exposure to lots of businesses and people and ways of thinking so you can really reflect on actually what do I want to get out of my life what makes me happy what motivates me etc
0: when you look back on that time what were the sort of key things you think that you took out of that whole experience of, of going to Stanford for two years and doing that MBA
1: well I think for me it was about it gives you confidence because you have that almost that kind of seal of approval on yourself. And so it gives you the confidence to take the next step, uh, in your life. I, I would love to go do my MBA again, because I think I would get even more value out of it now than I did then, because then I was still, I wasn't as confident. I was still pretty risk averse. Um, and I think I would have loved being sort of in Silicon Valley, but at that point in my life, it, Silicon Valley wasn't something that I knew that I understood. I didn't feel like I could, I could relate to it. I didn't necessarily feel like it was a person for me and entrepreneurship felt like something that other people did.
0: So it was still at that point even though you yeah. did the MBA which yeah. a classic sort of entrepreneur yeah. Yeah. thing to do isn't it? You weren't yeah. at that stage thinking yet about starting your own thing.
1: No the only thing that I did know at this point and, and which to be honest I'd known since Cambridge was I knew that I wanted to do something that I considered to be positive for the world. And I had always assumed, a lot of my classmates at Cambridge who did social and political sciences then went off and joined the charitable sector. And I can remember thinking, do you know what? I think I can probably have more impact if I go into the business world and learn as much as I possibly can and then try and take that learnings and apply it to the charitable sector. So I always had this sort of longer term ambition to move over um, into the charitable sector and into doing something that i felt was positive for the
0: world and when you say that was was any sort of particular areas or types of charities that you were thinking about at that time
1: not really no it was just a, a theme and a concept
0: um and so then was it after the mba you got the job at, at dyson no, after the MBA, I went back
1: to Emap. Yep. Um, I had to, uh, I wanted to go back. Um, I had some amazing career opportunities. I also had to sort of pay my dues. Mm. Um,
0: yes, of course.
1: So uh, I then spent a couple of years there, really working my way up to a general general management position. So the first general management position I got was as a publisher of a magazine, which I was so excited. Which, which magazine so that was it was retail week so that's the magazine for the yeah. retail industry um at the time it felt very very difficult because the media industry was very closed and to become a publisher you had to have always worked in publishing and you probably need to be 10 years older than i was and etc cetera, etc cetera. um so it was very difficult coming into that role as an outsider much younger than would how have old you have been at that time i was 28
0: Okay, so you would have been yeah. managing people a lot older, yeah. a lot more experienced.
1: Absolutely, who'd been working in that industry for 10, 15, 20 years. So what was that like?
0: Hard. <laughs> <laughs> in what way?
1: Um, it's, I think anyone who's ever had to manage someone that's older than them can relate to this the first time. it's just It feels awkward and difficult. But the way I tackled it was to just make it very, very clear that actually we could form a team and as a team together me bringing my skill sets and them bringing theirs we could um, achieve some pretty great things and I've also learned that being an outsider and having an external perspective can actually it's not a weakness it can actually be your single greatest source of strength because you can come in and you see things differently and you ask those questions and I, I, I sort of proposed some things at EMAP. I can remember in a board meeting once being called a heretic. <laughs> Why? Oh, because I, I was I was sort of um, proposing something that had never been done in, 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 in the media industry before. And... What was that? Uh, it essentially was uh, for Retail Week to publish a slimmed-down version of the main magazine and to distribute it for free to uh store managers so at the time retail week was focused just on the c level and we didn't really cover stores and store managers uh, chief executives chief financial officers and stuff like that is that a
0: publishing term the c level
1: um it's a consulting is it i think well i first came across it in in consulting um but that's where the magazine had previously been focused and i wanted to through talking to retailers, I realised that actually retail is all about stores and we weren't covering stores and actually the lifeblood of stores and their success is store managers. And also the opportunity for Retail Week to generate revenues was through recruitment and actually it was store managers who could um, get their jobs through job magazines, yeah. not a chief executive hmm. who was obviously going to be headhunted. So yes, yeah, so the, the idea was that we would distribute a... Slim down version of retail Week for free to some store managers. We did a deal with a recruitment consultancy whereby they gave us the names of all of their store managers that were on the uh, on their distribution list. and so we managed to actually quickly kickstart the growth of the business in that way and then in time sort of convert those people to paying readers, etc. But yeah, when I originally proposed it, yes, I was called a heretic. how did
0: you respond? <laughs>
1: Well, I kept 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 my game face on, um, and fought and fought and fought, and got approval, and yeah, it worked. It worked out.
0: So, d- from that experience, what do you think was the what was the most important thing that you did? Do you think being in that experience, that uh, yeah. scenario where you were, you know, dealing with much more experienced, much older people, what was the I mean, looking back on it now, not necessarily what you intended to do, but what what do you think you did that enabled you to, to win them over, most importantly?
1: I think that you, um, whenever you go into a new role, and this isn't just for managing older people, you need to be incredibly humble and you need to go in and you need to listen and you need to learn. And so that's actually where the classic consulting skills came in very handy because I was able to very quickly learn about the business from the people who knew much more about it than me, but I was able to bring some other skills to the table, um, sort of working with them. One of the key things that I I learned at eMap is that eMap was very much an organization where uh, innovation happened sort of broadly with the exception of the eMap digital thing, but um, broadly innovation actually happened from the ground up and so i learned the value of passion conviction and, and persistence there you if you wanted to change anything or do anything you had to go in front of what felt like sort of numerous boards in a very sort of gladiatorial type uh, environment but the the advantage of that was it sort of whittled out people who weren't necessarily that passionate or committed or, or had that conviction mm. about what they were trying to do and i compare that to some organizations i remember i had a friend who worked at. A large supermarket who remain unnamed, um, who used to regularly say, "Oh gosh, you know, I'm working on this. This is absolutely ridiculous." Everyone on the team who is working on this thinks this is the biggest waste of time. And I said, "Why? Why are you doing it?" He was like, "Well, we've been told from the top down. That's how this organisation works. The top tell us what to do, and we've just got to get on and do stuff." Whereas EMAP had exactly the opposite model, um, and I, I'm a big believer that the people who are closest to the users and to the customers can often have um, great insight in terms of what their problems what's the opportunities
0: so do you mean that the ideas came from there or that you uh, took the ideas to the people that were dealing it the sort of from the the, the, the people that were doing the job day to day do you mean the ideas came from them or you took the idea and presented it to them to get their buy-in
1: so um i, I think it's a combination of both so you you go in you get all the information and insight that currently exists in the business and what is in nine out of ten businesses they're very siloed into different functions that never talk to each other. And there's a a function that are actually talking to the customers all day long, but no one else is actually pulling that information or insight out. So you can kind of go into a business, you pull out all of that information, you tease it together, you then sort of combine that with some desk research and market research, and you can then start to pull together a a plan um, that you can then present as a story and a narrative and uh, an opportunity. And you can get people sort of behind that vision and um yeah take it from there really but rather
0: than the sort of top-down delegation
1: yeah i mean don't get me wrong a, a lot of things do you know top-down is appropriate in in some circumstances but i think that top-down you know if if people are in your organization are working on stuff that they think is a waste of time i think that's a really bad place to be as an organization so that's something that i was shocked to discover happens fairly routinely in many large organizations and something i've taken with me and, and vowed that i never want to be have people who are working uh, on teams with me who think that they're wasting their time
0: and is the solution to that as simple as you know constantly being having a dialogue with people at all levels
1: yes i think so it really is just about listening to people
0: um just coming back slightly to what you said about the retail week the small was it successful with the, the small version
1: retail week lights yeah yeah yeah
0: so what happened with that then well so we then idea? we
1: then it ran for a couple of years and then we didn't need it anymore and we could actually then sort of close that down because that had played the role that we needed which because you'd to, hoovered up these extra yeah, to customers rap- yeah exactly to sort of rapidly expand their readership
0: so uh, what point did you leave retail week at and what was the next move after that
1: so when i was working at retail week i spotted um an amazing business called planet retail which was a a online sort of retail intelligence business where you could subscribe to get all the data in the world about particular retailers. And I remember thinking, wow, that is exactly the type of digital product that Retail Week should have. But at the moment, we were part of a large conglomerate trying to access shared resources. And so it was very hard to deliver what we wanted. So I built relationships with the founders of that business over a couple of years and managed to persuade them that they should sell their company to EMAP and that EMAP was the natural home for that business and that we could enable it to sort of fulfill its full potential.
0: And so how did that pan out?
1: So we acquired the business. Um, I was then put in as managing director of that business and one of the co-founders stayed on to support me in the first uh, couple of months, which was really, really important to ensure we had a smooth transition um and yeah it was a great business and and a great role but i i sort of after doing that for a couple of years i had realized that i'd reached as far as i was going to go within emap and i'd also been there for seven years and was concerned that if i stayed too much longer i'd become institutionalized Mm -hmm. so i recognized that i needed to um move
0: on so what was the the move after that was that dyson at that point that was dyson
1: yep So, so,
0: yeah, tell me about how that came about.
1: So I, I was headhunted for that role. Uh, I was not the candidate on paper that they were looking for, but... Uh, went Do you,
0: th- why, in what way? What, who were they looking for?
1: I must have been, I can't remember at the time, but I can just remember them saying, you're off-spec. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a nice phrase.
1: Off-spec. Uh, but I went through the interview process and we connected and gelled and... It was a very exciting role. The organisation recognised that they needed to understand what digital meant for Dyson. And so uh, that was the remit that I was brought in at. So sort of help us figure out what digital means for Dyson. Uh, and in particular, we want you to focus on e-commerce and building our own direct to customer business.
0: So Dyson, you know, obviously, everyone knows James Dyson and yeah. the background to the company most people do anyway and so what was that like the environment working there where was it for a start because they have their own sort of campus yeah. don't they uh, and yes in a yeah.
1: field in the middle of nowhere in Wiltshire yeah so what was
0: that like you know upping <laughs> well, so sticks I, basically and moving was there. So, that,
1: so that did actually that did feel like a very big move I'd been in London as a sort of you know girl about town for <laughs> I think almost 10 years at that point and I had a job offer to stay in London which was an amazing role and this role and for some reason to this day i don't know why i just felt like i needed to take that role so i relocated to bath
0: so were you married at that point i was, was not no. no
1: i so i was uh, on a personal level i was in my, was in my early 30s and thought yep. this is just gonna be the death knell of my love life moving to <laughs> bath which is surely full of smug marrieds um <laughs> but i'm gonna do it anyway so anyway so I, I moved there with my little jack russell dog rusty um and did end up meeting my now husband. Right. Uh, the first day that I moved there, actually. Oh really? Yes. How yeah, did he, that come? He about? owned a restaurant uh, at the end of my street, and I went there <laughs> the first evening after I would sort of finished a hard day of unpacking, and the rest, they say, is history.
0: So, what then? Uh, what was it like then working on that the Dyson campus? Well, let's say am- when you first got there. That was, that was first an day. amazing was it like when you experience. First went in there? Well,
1: actually, the Dyson experience starts even before you show up. Okay. So they're very good at this. Um, I received in the post a copy of James's book. And also all of their paperwork and sort of HR materials are written with personality and just kind of living the brand. So and then you read the book, and I, I felt very excited to be joining this organisation. that was clearly full of people who were extremely passionate about what they were doing. Um, it's a pretty sort of high-security place, so sort of thumbprinting in and out, and you only had access to certain areas. Um, and a lot of people, though, was, I kind of think about 1,000 or 1,500 people there. Uh, and I was working directly at that sort of C-level, to use that phrase Mm -hmm. again, Uh, and also working very closely with James himself. So I would meet with him twice a week as part of sort of the creative review process for all things to do with marketing in general. And then I would also meet with him one-on-one to talk through what digital could mean for Dyson.
0: So how long then did you end up staying at Dyson for?
1: I was there for four years, and then I uh had my first baby and decided uh that i had sort of taken that organization as far as i could in the role that i could Hmm. and so it was time for a new opportunity
0: and so what was the opportunity the, the move after that
1: um, well, I wanted to do my own thing, and I spent most of my maternity leave furiously writing, uh, sort of you know, multitasking and writing business plans and okay, ideas. Okay, so what were the ideas so, at that point? Uh, so gosh, yeah, so at too, this, too, did you was remember. there a,
0: a time when you realised you wanted to start your own? thing? Well,
1: yes, uh, sort of yes and no. So I would say that for my last couple of years at Dyson, I had this growing itch and this sort of growing frustration because I would find myself going on leadership courses or going to events and listening to speakers who were just so incredibly inspiring and what they were doing was just amazing.
0: Can you think of any examples?
1: Honestly, too many to mention. I mean, honestly, too many to mention. And these people would talk about what they had done and the impact they were having. And I can remember just being increasingly frustrated that I was just sort of sat in the audience, feeling so inspired by their life and so inspired by their story and so uninspired by my own. Um, so why I, do you
0: think you were uninspired by... Because you've obviously well, been very because, successful yes, you know, in many people's yeah, eyes. Yeah, I so had a good why CV. You, why did you feel that you were... <laughs> you know, you felt uninspired by what doing? Well, I, I honestly...
1: Doing. I can remember very clearly. I honestly thought, you know what? If I were to die tomorrow, I would not be proud of anything I've, I've achieved. Like, and I know that I've got a good CV and I know it looks great. Um, but I, I think... Maybe up until that point, I was doing things that were seen as successful rather than doing things that I was truly genuinely passionate about. And the reality is, what gets me excited and really, really passionate is doing stuff that makes a difference and that I can see as making the world, so I you mean, know, it sounds a bit cliched, but a better place. And so, all these sort of corporate jobs just being sort of. Uh, Another bolt in the large mechanism just didn't feel feel like it was um, doing that for me.
0: So while you were at Dyson, then you started to think about uh, things. Well, that Well, when you I was on maternity do. leave, oh, okay.
1: so I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really have the mental bandwidth, quite frankly, when I was right. working full time um, to start thinking up ideas. But when I was on maternity leave, uh, I definitely started coming up with a number of digital ideas and opportunities and, and can you
0: remember stuff. some of the ideas that you had at that Gosh, point
1: well, well one of them was about i can't really remember the detail of it but the one that i was running with most was was the concept really of sort of flipping shopping on its head and actually enabling customers to say this is what i'm passionate about this is what i'm interested in and then allowing brands to give you personalized offers um so there was something kind of around that whole e-commerce offers personalization type okay so the space. use of
0: data really to, yeah. to target to target. target market people with yes offers. And,
1: to, and to give me the power to say this is this is what I'm interested in this is what I want and actually to create wish lists um, and those wish lists could then be used by friends and family to actually make sure one that they bought me stuff that I actually wanted rather than buy me stuff oh, that i, I really so do want so it would be more that people a, could buy stuff for so the, you. the concept was i'm now sort of dragging this back up <laughs> from back of my brain the concept was actually yeah it was around a wish list and that i could sort of create my own wish list of things that i loved or was interested in or passionate about my friends and family could then buy that for me um, rather than scratching their heads every christmas and birthday thinking what on earth do i buy her um, and then the brands could pay to sort of advertise against that and to provide discounts. Yeah. Um, so, so not only could that. you
0: buy something that your friend or family member wants, but you, you could get, get a discount, discount when you it. buy it. Yes, yeah,
1: exactly. So that, that was the, that was the concept. Um, so I, sort I've got very excited about that. And actually, um, I had met, uh, Errol, who was the founder of the Wong group, uh, previously at events and he was sort of the only entrepreneur that I knew Mm. (laughs) so I sent him my business plan to ask him for some feedback and he said uh, essentially don't do this come work for me instead Uh, heading up a new business unit which was a retail sort of payment by installment product. So I knew from my experience at Dyson, you know, Dyson's are pretty expensive and I knew that there were lots of customers who couldn't afford to buy it on a debit card, but they also didn't want to put it on a credit card because of the lack of discipline, the Mm -hmm. sort of concern about spiraling costs and and debt and not paying it off. And really what they wanted was, you know, the kind of the good old fashioned higher purchase, but to be able to do it digitally. And so that was the Business unit that I was brought in, and the product that I was brought in to head up.
0: So, did you? How long did you have for your maternity then from Dyson? The first,
1: well, I think it was just under a year. And then, did you, like you went back to Dyson? At I that didn't point. go back to Dyson. Oh, you didn't no, go back. No.
0: Okay, so you left then and yeah. went straight to Wonga. Went
1: straight to head up pay later. Yeah. So was that was an interesting time at Wonga,
0: yet. wasn't it?
1: It was. Well, it was just before it got interesting. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was. It was a growing, um, yeah. it it, it, the challenges were starting to become apparent but it wasn't yet sort of fully apparent um i was very clear that i was joining a a completely new business unit that was you know i had no interest in the wonga business or anything to do with it quite frankly but i could see that customers wanted to why was that i wasn't particularly interested in in financial services and sort of short-term loans I just I couldn't yeah know just didn't feel like that was for me but given my experience at Dyson I could very clearly see why you know people like me uh you know and it was very relatable that problem of I want to buy something it's more expensive than I can afford this month but if I can spread it over three months I'd love to be able to get it um whether that be a holiday or a vacuum cleaner or you know your fridge is broken you need to buy a new one these purchases they they all happen to all of us and i was very excited by the potential for a product that sort of sits between a debit card and a credit card hmm.
0: and so yeah so you, the, you went in then to develop this new business unit so how did yep. that go at first when you were developing that
1: um well i very quickly realized after i joined that the whole organisation was growing very rapidly in every direction in terms of new business units and new countries, and it was coming under a lot of, lots of strain, quite frankly. Um, and so that made it very difficult for me to do, the job that I was doing, and I also felt at the time that the, the sort of the parent company, needed to clear a clearer strategy. Um, so to. Cut a a very long story short. I, I did the role that I was brought in to do for less than three months, I think. And I was, um, asked to first of all, do a piece of strategy work to help figure out, um, what was going on with Wonga UK. And then after that work, so I did that for a month or so. I was then asked to actually take over the business as the managing director. And I was very clear that um, what the business needed to do was to be a fraction of the size that it was then. It needed to stop lending to a lot of people it was lending to, needed to take the current advertising they had off the air, needs to change how they were treating customers in arrears, and basically it was a complete turnaround. And that was what I said to the board as the result of the strategy project, this mm. is this is what needs to happen. Um, and this is this is the true state of the business today, which I don't think had really been presented that way before. And they said, right, we want you to to do that job.
0: And during that time at Wonga, you had to deal with some pretty significant challenges. So what are the key things that you learned from that whole experience?
1: I'm a positive person, so <laughs> you can learn something from everything. I learned a huge amount through that experience and as I'm now building Olio um, I can see all the things that went wrong at Wonga and because I had to figure out what went wrong I, I then got a good understanding of what went wrong and so there's a lot of things that I know to make sure that we don't ever do. Are there um, any
0: examples you can give?
1: Um, I, yeah I don't want to go into too much detail there if that's okay but that's fine. Um, I think though there are Lots of um, lessons in terms of startups. We're we're always told to sort of, you know, move fast and break things and fail fast. And I think that for certain industries, that's fine and acceptable. But, you know, maybe if you're doing something in healthcare or financial services, it isn't. Um, And yeah, I I have lots and lots of learnings, but probably for another time.
0: (laughs) So were you then still. I'm sure, you, as we know, you were very busy at the time, but were you still yeah. looking at other ideas then at this point of things no, you could I do
1: had, for yourself? I was working night and day trying to um, trying to make sure that we did the right thing by the customers um, and sort of sort things out. So no, I was not. I was just 100% focused
0: on the job. So how did that time at Wonga sort of conclude itself? Uh,
1: I had my second baby and I went off a maternity leave and was very clear that i did not want to spend the next five years of my life fixing quite frankly other people's mess mm. um, so i felt i had done my part i had got the business to get start getting onto the right track and it was time to sort of hand that over to others
0: so was it then on the second maternity leave, second maternity up leave
1: with... i was once again yeah um just mind racing with sort of lots of ideas and opportunities, and documenting. Did you resurrect
0: them. the idea from the first? It was. Leave? It was
1: in a document that I created that had about sort of ten different ideas where I I'd sort of rated them all and etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But I, on this maternity leave, I can remember sort of having one of those classic shower moments, mm-hmm. thinking, "Hang on a minute." You know the world does not need another photo sharing app or another e-commerce proposition. It really, really doesn't. <laughs> Why don't I use my time to solve a real problem? Mm. And in that sort of same second, I thought, well, what are real problems? Well, healthcare, I'm like, no, I'm in no way equipped to solve any healthcare problems. Education, I don't know the first thing about education. Um, So I quickly discounted those as two big, obvious problem areas. And then bizarrely, this sort of stat popped into my head, which I probably had heard on the radio or read in a newspaper weeks or months before, that a third of all the food we produce gets thrown away. Hmm. And and that stat somehow came back into my head. And I was like, hang on a minute. That sounds like a pretty big problem that (laughs) we're throwing away a third of all the food we produce. And my parents are farmers. So why why don't I sort of look into that? And so at the time I was working with a very good friend of mine and also my now co-founder Sasha and so we started working actually on this concept on the concept of waste more generally and could we build a global b2b marketplace for waste
0: so Um, were you just friends at the time yeah did you meet in in, in, Sasha and I met at business school so how did you first meet then
1: Uh, so at business schools of what must be now, the about same 12 years or... ago. Yeah, at Stanford, there was only a sort of relatively small class of about 360 people. So you knew everybody. And um, yeah, so we knew each other. We weren't super close at business school, but we knew each other fairly well. We, our relationship really developed when we moved back to London after business school. And um, uh, we both lived in the same area of North London. And so we would see each other kind of every week.
0: And so was you? Did you know at that point that she was keen to start her own? So on our, company so we well? did our
1: first maternity leave together at the same time, and we'd worked on a, a project to solve a problem that was very real for us at that time, which was when you change a baby um, on sort of a changing table, if you're not careful, they can roll off. Um, and so we sort of came up with this baby sort of safety barrier thing that you could sort of clip onto any surface to transform it into a safe baby changing station. Uh, and we sort of worked on that project during our first maternity leave and it was fun, but I think we both realized that it wasn't super scalable and it wasn't our life passion. She then went on to found crèche which is North London's first pay-as-you-go high street childcare solution, where you can just sort of drop off your child um, for a couple of hours or, or a day. And um, through that process, she had got the entrepreneurial bug, knew that she loved it, but realized, quickly that childcare doesn't scale Hmm. so then when I was on my second maternity leave and going through all these ideas and had come up with this sort of concept of solving the problem of waste more broadly I told her about that she loved it immediately got it and was like yeah let's sort of work on that together so so that was just in a sort of you just having a chat rather
0: than just rather than actually sort of saying I've got an idea oh yeah yeah no no it was
1: just doing a chat chat. actually initially it was myself and my friend Maria who were working on this because I can remember thinking, um, you know, who else do I know who works in the digital world and who so sort of, you know, wants to make change happen and this and that? I was like, hang on a minute, why don't I just reach out to Maria and see if she wants to do something? So what
0: was she doing at that time?
1: She had some, I can't remember where she was at that time, but she had some fairly sort of high-flying corporate career in the digital space. Um, and so she and I agreed to start working together. I knew she wanted to do something entrepreneurial and I was like, hang on, it makes no sense for us both to be separately working on our entrepreneurial ideas. We should work together. Mm. Um, And so we started doing that. And then I told Sasha about what Maria and I were doing. And she was like, oh my God, I want to be part of that. So the three of us were working uh, on this concept of a global B2B marketplace for waste. We spent about a month maybe researching that. And it was... I'll never forget, so with such heavy hearts, we had this call where we realised that actually this was just not going to work. It was not a feasible opportunity. And we were so depressed because none of us wanted to um, go back and sort of get proper jobs. Why was it not a feasible
0: opportunity? Or why uh, did you think at that point it wasn't?
1: It, it, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember all the reasonings, but essentially i think we just felt that the market was not yet ready to be digitized um in that way because it was about building a marketplace and actually a marketplace to work you need kind of fragmented supply and fragmented demand and um was there a marketplace already for it no there isn't it's all done it's all sort of done offline um so very informal i I think we that was right so we there was lots of waste being generated but there weren't actually yet sufficient people on the other side to absorb that waste um no. and so i there was half of the marketplace but there wasn't the other half of the marketplace so match the supply it. was there but not the demand, not the demand. Yeah. yeah and so we felt it was too early to build a two-sided marketplace there so we decided not to do that um we were very depressed we didn't want to go back and get proper jobs and then i went upstairs to put my little girl down for a nap and i went Back to Sasha, and I said, oh, "Sasha, I have had this other really crazy idea. Don't laugh, <laughs> but," and I told her the story of how I was moving country from living in Geneva back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said, "You need to toss away all that food." And I was like, "No way!" And so I <clears throat> stopped packing, and much their irritation. And I sort of gathered the food and my kids and set out onto the streets to find someone to give this food to. I failed i got very over emotional that i've gone to all this effort and have failed and i thought about knocking on my neighbor's doors and i was like that's inefficient and even if they do answer it'll be really awkward and embarrassing because they don't know me and they might not want it mm. so i ended up sort of putting the non-perishable stuff sort of sneaking it into my packing boxes and thinking great i'm probably you know committing a criminal offense or something now this is crazy why isn't there an app that why can't i share my food via an app
0: why do you think you were so bothered at that time that you you didn't just, a lot of people waste. would have just left the food and said, right food see your food. Bye-bye. i hate food bye bye
1: i hate hate food waste and i also know that a lot of people leave food saying oh the cleaners will take it it's like the cleaners don't necessarily want all of your random food um you know what you're assuming that they have the same food taste as you that they have got completely empty fridges and suddenly can deal with this they lose your food. So, so, and I thought that's not fair. That's just sort of passing my problem on to someone else. Um, so, I where do to... you
0: think that comes from? That, well,
1: I think people don't like wasting food in general. And that's why people do say, oh, I'll leave it for the cleaning ladies. Um, because no one really likes throwing away food. But I just think that if you leave it for the cleaning ladies, unless you've explicitly discussed it with them and they've made it very clear that they want it, you're probably just passing your problem on to them.
0: And where do you think that comes from for you? That that sort of concern about that particular thing, you know that.
1: Because uh, I was just always brought up to believe that food is, you know, precious and valuable. It's what we need to live and survive, um, and that an awful lot of hard work goes into producing it. So it would be criminal to throw it away.
0: So that happened to you what a couple of years before this conversation, then with Sasha. No, no, no
1: that happened weeks before. Oh, it happened weeks before, but it obviously yeah. stuck Very with live. you. Yeah, yeah. No. So that that's the experience. So that was where I had this crazy food sharing app idea. Right. Um, but it was a couple of weeks later when the other one, it was very clear we we're going to have to park that one. That I sort of plucked up the courage to share that idea with Sasha because it did sound and feel like a crazy idea. So
0: what was the big? The, just remind. So the first idea, which you then got rid of. Mm-hmm. What was? What was the big? Diff- what was the idea? Well, just that, that, that that down. was
1: a B two B marketplace okay. away. So that right. that was some, um, you know, a company that is generating enormous quantities of waste and someone else might want to So you
0: basically own. thought, actually, this isn't going to work business to business, but it could work between individuals or between, well, no, between restaurants sort of, well, to we individuals. Well, sort we of or...
1: discounted the idea of a global marketplace for waste because we were thinking about sort of, you know, plastics and metals see, and, right. and stuff like that. So we'd park that idea. This idea, although actually sort of thematically it was similar as dealing with the problem of waste... This was much more driven by my own personal experience. I, this is just wrong that I should be, have no option other than to throw away this food.
0: So you really narrowed it down to food. That was what you are going to yeah. focus. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so was that? Looking back now, was that a kind of, was that the moment where this all began? Then, when you actually told Sasha,
1: it it was because I then explained it to her, and we spent one hour kind of doing our sort of MBA on it so what's the size of the opportunity and what's the competition and how could it work and how could we make money so these are the the
0: the skills you directly learn together at Stanford yeah
1: yeah Yeah. um and through consulting and stuff like that so we sort of spent an hour just thrashing it out and at the end of the hour I think we both knew that we were just caught hook line sinker we were just totally emotionally invested um and that we wanted to make this reality so at that point we then committed right let's Let's look into this more seriously, um, but it was sort of less than a week later we had incorporated the right. company um, so that we incorporated February the ninth 2015 and we said, right, we've got till the end of this year to make this work, and if we don't then we have to go back and get proper jobs. so we had a very, very loud ticking
0: clock and when you say make this work what what was your sort of you know criteria Definition. Yeah. yeah well
1: the the funny thing is. If I'm being very honest, I don't think we really knew what Hmm. making this work meant. Um, But I think we felt that it would be kind of obvious when we're in it. Um, But what we did know is we incorporated in February and we knew that, well, we knew that we would have to raise money because it was very clear that this model um, would only be able to make money when it's at scale with millions of people using it. And we would never be able to get it to millions of people without any investment. So we knew that we needed to have six months worth of data showing that we have this app people are using it and they it works and they like it so then working back from that you know if if we need to have six months of data that meant we had to be sort of launched that summer so we did sort of five months to the day after incorporating july the 9th we launched the pilot version of the app
0: and what made you decide to do it as an app rather than you know because it is specifically Mm. an app isn't it yes um was that a definite you know was that an early decision that right yeah. okay it's going to be an app and this is why
1: it, it, it was because we knew that for people share food we need they need to be able to take a photograph of the food um, and actually just being able to do that on your phone we needed to have a location for the food you've got gps on your phone we knew that people need to be able to message there's a keyboard on your phone so all the things that were required were on your phone
0: yeah, it clearly does lend itself to all the yeah. all the functionality you need is all yeah. in the phone, isn't it? So just tell me a bit about the name then, so because often the name of something is is crucial, isn't it, to yeah. to nailing down what it's yeah. all about and 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 the kind of the the vision for it. So just tell me a bit about the the name Oleo and how that came about. Yep,
1: so Olio um, so well, first of all we had a decision to make, which is do we want to have a descriptive name so that when people hear it they know what it is or do we want to have um a name that we can own and create a brand around and we felt as we looked at all the major brands that we were aware of the vast majority of them have taken a word and owned it so we were quite clear that we you know we wanted to go down that route rather than be the food exchange network Mm -hmm. we just thought that is just so risky hard to remember um and yeah not a good plan so we then, quite frankly, were just uh, Googling and looking for synonyms and, and and stuff like that. And Olio immediately jumped out to us. So Olio it means a miscellaneous collection of things, which when you look on the app, that is what you'll see. It's also a traditional uh, Mediterranean stew, and stew is a classic um, dish to prevent leftover to prevent food waste. Sorry, and um, but almost even more importantly than that we loved the fact that it's got sort of the two o's which is all about sort of the circular economy the sharing economy it's about community it's quite sort of warm and quite friendly and we also thought that the word oleo sounded quite aspirational it sounded a little bit elegant and we were very clear from the beginning that if we want to solve the problem of food waste and to do it at scale this has to be something that has mainstream appeal this cannot be seen as something that's just bunch of tree hugging hippies
0: and so you you settled on the name and then i guess then you started a whole process of branding and, and getting the, the look and feel of the app and yeah. it was so did you do that yourselves or did well, you well
1: no you see so we we um we read a book called the lean startup by eric reese and we really absorbed all the messages of that which is just develop the minimal feature set and get it out as quickly as possible um, we also realized that we would not succeed or fail on the basis of our logo. And, and, um, and again, I think that's a mistake. Some people can make to spend almost too much time on, on the design elements of things. So we got our first logo done and our first branding and colors done for 300 quid off people per hour, um, so we needed to keep our costs super lean and we were in a hurry. So we spent very little time on that. We just knew it had to be good enough
0: and is that the branding that you have now or is that you moved uh, we've, on from we've that we
1: kept we have kept the font we have kept the um so it was uh, at the moment our, our colors are teal and sort of a a dark pink it was a sort of a mint and a light pink so we've we've definitely we've moved it on but actually there's a lot of uh, similarity yeah
0: so just tell me a bit as well about the the team and how that's evolved because it, it start yeah. it just started with you and Sasha well, it, started, right? it
1: started with me and Sasha so after we sort of got the logo we then um, actually before we even built the app we researched the problem of food waste and what we discovered really really shocked us and and motivated us so globally a third of all the food we produce gets thrown away um, 800 million people are hungry in the world. Even in a country like the UK, we have 8 million people living in food poverty and 8 million people is the equivalent to the population of London. So we have widespread hunger in this country. And then food waste um, is the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. So we're kind of throwing away food on industrial scale. We've got widespread hunger. We are destroying the planet in the process. And what we discovered is that half of all food waste takes place in the home. So in a country like the UK, the average UK family throws away £700 sterling of food each year. That's just a quarter of the weekly shop. And that collectively adds up to £13 billion. So we did the desk research and we were convinced, wow, this is an enormous problem. But we didn't necessarily know whether people cared about that or not. So the next thing we did was a market research survey. And the key stat coming out of that was that one in three people told us they were physically pained throwing away good food. So it's like, great, it's a it's a problem. It's a problem that people care about they dislike the current solution i guess um but that doesn't mean to say that they will take the next step which is to share food with strangers via an app how can we prove that hypothesis without sort of investing our our life savings into building an app and so what we did was we invited 10 people who'd said they absolutely hated food waste who lived close to one another um, via that survey and we asked them to take part in a trial for two weeks we put them onto a whatsapp group so none of these people have met each other or met us and we said for the next two weeks if you've got any spare food just share it by the whatsapp group and mm. we'll see what happened and we sort of you know waited with bated breath um and the first thing that was shared was half a bag of shallots <laughs> <laughs> which is very sort of uh, crouch end which is where, where it was shared um
0: do you still have that half a bag of <laughs> <laughs> No,
1: they're a little mouldy by now. But, frame um, it. Yeah, exactly. We, def- we have a screenshot of it, that's for yeah. sure, yes. Um, and we debriefed them with all those people afterwards, and they gave some really, really helpful feedback. They said, you have to build this. It only needs to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group and that was just such helpful advice because every time when you're designing something you think oh it must have this feature it must have that feature it must you know we're connecting strangers to share food we must have user reviews surely and they said it's just got to be slightly better than the whatsapp groups We're like no remove all those features so that enabled us to be very very focused um and they also said and how can i help Hmm. and so that was the start of the ambassador program so whilst the team was sasha and i um in the beginning actually it was Sasha and I plus these twelve people who helped sort of uh, on launch day make sure that we had food on the app, and they helped spread the word and, and stuff like that.
0: And so, how many people are involved now?
1: In the team or using the Both. app? Both. Both. Uh, so the team is now nine: so me, Sasha, and uh, three in product, one in marketing, and three in sort of network and community. And then, in terms of users of the app, we have four hundred thousand who have together shared over half a million portions of food. Which is the environmental equivalent of taking 1.2 million car miles off the road. So impressive. Yeah, it, it is. We're extremely proud of that and very excited by it, but also um, very, very anxious to just dramatically accelerate um, that. Because if you think that we've done sort of 1.2 million car miles off the road, um, and we are currently doing sort of 0.001% of our full potential and capability. So we've still got a long way to go. We've got 400,000 users today. We need 400 million. <laughs> so Is that the plan? It is. It, because uh, without <coughs> wanting to sound too, too um, silly about this, but um, honestly, the world does need <laughs> to stop wasting food uh, in the way that we do if we want to be able to feed everybody and if we want to be able to try and reduce the rate of global warming.
0: So how um, geographically widespread is it being used now in the UK?
1: Um, so three quarters of our sign-ups are outside of London, a quarter in London, but half of our sharings in London. Mm. So that's because we've got network effects. So there's lots of people here who are yeah. using it, which em- encourages more people to use it. But we're also really uh, proud of the fact that we have had successful food sharing take place in 32 countries so far. And that, again, is just thanks to our volunteers who we give them all the materials and the know-how and they are spreading the word about earlier in their community. So in
0: theory, does it, does it, do you need to do anything to the app to make it available in other countries or, you know (laughs) what I mean? I
1: will always remember the day where Sasha and I were like, gosh, we keep on getting people emailing us from all over and they're getting quite angry. (laughs) Do you know what? why don't we just make it available globally? And there's this lovely box that you can tick in the uh, app store, which just says make available in all countries. And it was as easy as that. Really? So obviously it's the English language version of the app, but um, actually the majority of the content on earlier is user generated content. So you can describe your listings in your own language. You can message in your own language. Clearly it's not ideal that the navigation is in English, but sort of for the time being, um, it, it sort of works well enough.
0: And so, have you sort of, you know, plotted the graph of where you see it going? in you know, you say four hundred million is the yeah, eventual it, it target, is. but do you know? <laughs> well, we've got to be at... on. A, we've
1: got to be on a million by the end of this year. That, um, that's the plan. Yep. So our, our target last year was to hit three hundred forty thousand users, and we got three hundred forty-five thousand. <laughs> so we made that one, and our target this year is just just shy of a million.
0: And that's anywhere effectively. You know, is... it,
1: our focus is on the UK. Right for now but um what is happening is that olio is growing organically overseas because people are spreading the word and social media nowadays obviously it's sort of a borderless community so people are hearing about earlier
0: has it been a surprise to you how sort of how many other you know 32 countries you say has, has that yeah. surprised you or do you think that this was always when um, you actually well when listen, you talked about it yeah this seemed possible
1: <laughs> it um It's what we have always been working towards, but it has been just an incredibly hard, long slog. And it it is. So it's sort of half of me. Oh, my God, something's just been shared in Romania. I've never (laughs) even been to Romania. Isn't that amazing? And to be able to see the photos of the food that has been saved is just incredible. So whenever... You know, there are lots of low moments when you're on your entrepreneurial journey. And what actually sort of keeps us going is we can look in the system on the back end and see all the food that we're saving and is being shared. Um, So, yeah, so it's it is exciting.
0: And how does it work with you and Sasha? Do you have sort of very different roles or do you both sort of do the same? Do you overlap quite a lot? No,
1: we have very different roles and we were very, um, I think, quite considered about that at the very beginning. So we sat down and discussed, right, what are all the roles we have? How are we going to divide them up? And we divided them up sort of playing to our own strengths and areas of experience. And actually, the functions that I'm responsible for today and that she's responsible for today are the same ones that we agreed to you know, nearly three years ago now.
0: And when you think about the whole process, you know, you, you, obviously, we talked about you having ideas and trying to make those happen mm-hmm. and scrapping a couple of ideas or several mm-hmm. ideas, <laughs> yeah. 10 ideas in your folder how important has it been to have that sort of buy-in from another person to have yeah. that to do it as huge to, as two people rather than I,
1: one? i really don't think i would have done it by myself i don't think i would have had the courage or the conviction um i've also since subsequently found out that your chances of success as a solo founder are significantly lower. So that's not to say that you shouldn't be a solo founder, but just the statistics say you are much likely to be successful, to be able to raise financing, to grow your business to scale, if there are two or three uh, founders. And, and I honestly think that one of the greatest strengths of Olio is the relationship that Sasha and I have together. We love working together. We complement each other extremely well.
0: Just, you mentioned the finance, I was going to ask you about that a bit, just not necessarily the detail, but in terms of the, the process of raising the finance, yeah. how how difficult a process was that?
1: Well, we've had uh, th- three, we're sort of in the middle of our third round of financing. The first round was remarkably easy, um, bizarrely, because we went asking for uh, advice and got investment. Um
0: who so was that with a sort that of that was actually with angel a investor? With, with no
1: with a with the with the vc firm that i had met through my work actually at wonga so some good things do <laughs> do come out of that experience um, so yes that was a very unusual impossible to replicate fundraising process uh, the second time round it was a lot harder because we'd never sort of really fundraised before and we spent a lot of time sort of out in the market, trying to meet people and network to find the right people as well as asking for money. And that's just not a very effective way to go about things. So it ended up taking seven months. Um, this time round, we've done it slightly differently. I spent all of last year meeting with investors, but not fundraising, but meeting with them to understand just where there was a connection and a good fit. And so now that we're fundraising, on the basis of all those people i've met we've then selected a, a few to actively um go and pitch to and that's been a much more productive way of doing
0: things so that was time well spent actually just not even having the conversation about financing just just having talking, to talking them about to the business them, telling what, them what we're doing yeah. yeah
1: and people oh, is a little bit like marmite people either love it or they just look at you as if you're just slightly strange. Hmm. Um, And I I sort of quickly learned, I can, I can tell now um, people who love oleo because they can't help but just share some sort of anecdote about food waste and what they've done or their partner does or, or something they kind of want to share that story with you. Um, And that's just a really, it's a good sort of test for me, actually. We want to be working with people who are as passionate as we are about solving this problem and as committed to it as we are.
0: Um, I had a question that I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, just bear with me. No, I can't remember what it was. Um, I was going to ask you, you um, before we started recording, you mm-hmm. mentioned about the way that you've set up your office and the fact that most of your the people yep. that work for you work remotely. Yeah. Just tell me a bit about why you've done that and and why that's important to you
1: yeah um well i would say it's happened very organically so it wasn't part of a master vision or strategy it really arose out the fact that both sasha and i have young children so um when we first started oleo we both had three-year-olds and i had a newborn baby actually two and a half year old and a newborn um so we needed something that was and also i lived outside of london and she lived in london so we needed something that worked for us um so from the very beginning we worked remotely but together and then as we started recruiting the team we realized at that point in time we still had hardly any budget and we looked at the cost of getting an office and it was just enormously expensive and we just thought what a waste of money we have worked really effectively with ourselves with the first version of the app was built by a development agency we did all of that remotely Um, why do we now need to you know some people told us that we should get an office but we sort of resisted that Um, we thought we'd rather spend that money spreading the word about olio and acquiring new users than than on an office that we won't use that often and then we also found that From a recruitment perspective, actually, it's extremely attractive. There are lots of people who don't want to waste their life sitting, uh, commuting, you know, under someone else's sweaty armpit. (laughs) Uh, And actually, they'd far rather be sort of uh, working from home, in particular for developers. Mm. That's very attractive. Software development. Yeah. Yeah. And so we found that we're able to get just an excellent quality of developer. Uh, They're less expensive as well because they're not based in London. So on every level, really, it uh, made a lot of sense. And we do have, obviously this is the front room of my flat where we are now. We do use this space for sort of team meetings or uh, Sasha has some one-on-one meetings, but um, yeah, broadly everything's done remotely. And with the technology that you can use nowadays, it's it's really amazing. Do you
0: feel it's held you back at all, not having an office?
1: Quite the opposite. I think it's helped accelerate us because we've not had an office.
0: Not to worry about those overheads. Don't have to worry
1: about those overheads. Um, we've, we've, you know, if you think that the average person probably spends ten hours a week commuting, well, let's split the difference. The person will, you know, have five hours a week extra with their family and five hours a week extra working. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, we, we see it as as a positive. But you do have to work around that. So we have an incredibly um, active just team WhatsApp group. And so are we, that's where we have the camaraderie and the banter, and um, and we share information and, and stuff like that. And we do also make an effort to get together, sort of as a team, physically for things like you know Christmas and stuff like that.
0: And I guess just to follow up on that, though, if, you know, if the target is four hundred million mm-hmm. users, <laughs> then presumably the team is going to have to grow. It is, a little yeah. bit to to yeah. accommodate that. So, yeah. is there? A, do you think that that you'll always be able to sustain that? Everyone working remotely, or do you think eventually you might have to? Get probably an
1: not. Um, I think we will probably need to have some sort of office space because even just things very practically for all our marketing materials, right? Um, so, we'll probably need to have some form of, of of office space. But I think we will think very carefully about when and where and how we do that and also what our ways of working are Um, we have thought about giving our team members access to co-working spaces instead of taking office space ourselves so that if they do want to get out and about so we recognize as well that as and when we want to recruit more junior positions so if we are recruiting someone their first job out of school or university actually they probably can really benefit from an office environment so at the moment because all of our team are um, slightly more advanced in their careers they're not necessarily craving that office environment in the same way that someone who's slightly younger might be but so these these are all bridges that we've got to cross
0: and when you think about the future for Olio I mean what's the sort of overriding feeling when you when you look ahead what does it make you feel when you're thinking about the future
1: um just a sort of cold sweats in the night urgency in terms of what we've got to do because um the more and more I've been immersed in this whole world of oleo and food waste but also the issue of waste more generally, the more terrifying it is um to realise the true state of the world. So for example, um there's this concept which I only sort of come across since working on earlier called Earth Overshoot Day. And that is the day in the year at which we've used up all the resources that the world can replenish in that year. So they first started measuring this in 1969. And at that time, we lived pretty much in equilibrium with the planet. We used up in the year what the planet could replenish in a year. Mm. Last year, Oath Overshoot Day was the 2nd of August. So every single day, every single bit of consumption that the billions of us have done has been net net sort of depletive. So it's really, and if you and look, that up, and that date's coming earlier and that date's coming earlier and earlier. And and it's and so the average American citizen is, if the whole planet consumed like an American citizen, we would need five planets to sustain ourselves. Uh, if the whole planet consumed like a British citizen, we'd need three planets to sustain ourselves. That is just not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to change our approach to move away from this sort of disposable consumption oriented culture to a culture which is actually about reusing and sharing and not wasting and um yeah so we just feel an enormous sense of urgency around our work
0: okay i'd like to finish by asking you uh, three questions that i'm gonna ask i'm asking everyone who i'm speaking to uh before i do though (laughs) i we said we'd come back to something about james dyson but all i've got written down is is Dyson. Then I can't remember <laughs> anything else. So. No,
1: and don't worry, I haven't come up with inspired answers. <laughs> okay, so fine. We'll, we'll skip that We'll leave one.
0: that. So uh, the first question is, uh, is do you have, um, thinking about, you know, being, I guess, partly related to being on your maternity leave and coming up with your ideas, but also now, now that you're running the company, but do you have like a routine or a set of <laughs> uh you know, circumstances where you're in a particular place or you're in a certain frame of mind or a certain time of day where you do the sort of, where you feel most productive?
1: Yes. Uh, I would, one thing that has been quite surprising to me to discover is that my most um, creative moments and my sort of moments of biggest insight have been when I'm not working. So that is when I am running, when I'm in the shower, when I'm in the gym, uh, and so that is why I don't feel guilty <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, schedule, as does Sasha, we both have time scheduled into the working day because that's sort of the only time we can fit it in to go to the gym and to stay sort of fit and healthy. Um, and when I first did it, I, I just I felt awful. I felt so guilty. I had that sort of corporate mentality. And now I, I actually I just come up with so many great ideas,, uh, and insights through that. And also through listening to podcasts. So often when I'm running, I listen to podcasts. And that's when you get just that those breakthrough thoughts and those breakthrough moments. Why
0: do you think that is? In your case, I mean.
1: So I listen to lots and lots of podcasts uh, about from other startup founders and from investors. And you can just learn from everyone else's story and take inspiration from what they've done and apply that thinking to your own business and um, yeah it's works really well
0: um, when you look back on your whole career which we've done quite a lot of but <laughs> yeah. in terms of what, what I'm really interested in is what you feel what one event or piece of work that you did <clears throat> do you feel sort of most proud of it doesn't have to be the most mm-hmm. lucrative or the most yep. high profile but the one thing that when you look back that, that springs to mind, first of all, when you think what's the thing that you're most mm. proud of that you've done? Well,
1: I mean, that's an easy one for me. It's Olio. <laughs> um, I, you know, for the longest time, I think I mentioned it earlier on, I thought, you know, if I would die tomorrow, I wouldn't be proud of what I've achieved. You know, when I lie on my deathbed and look back and think about what I've done, what will I be proud of? Um, you know, sort of family aside, so we're talking about my career, uh, without a it doubt, it's Olio.
0: And finally, um, and this can be anything Uh, what are you really enjoying watching or listening to or reading (laughs) right now? So it can be a podcast, a DVD, you know, a a box set. It could be a TV program. It could be a radio, a book, whatever. What are you really, right now, what's really exciting you?
1: Um, Well, so... Podcasts, as I've already said to you, sort of slightly obsessive listener to podcasts. So that that's... A, that's Any ones in particular that you can uh, name? I love This Week in Startups, Recode Deco by Kara Swisher, How I Built This. Um, I'm listening to uh, one called Grey Matter. Um, so lo- lots of the future noughts, lo- love podcasts. Uh, then in terms of, I guess, the only time I do genuinely switch off is my husband and i do watch some box sets so uh at the moment we are watching victoria
0: i've not seen that is that the queen victoria is that on is that netflix or is that a bbc i can't remember now
1: oh gosh i i lose track of where (laughs) we're watching it but um yeah it's it's all about uh queen victoria and it's it's quite amazing actually how um how forward-thinking and progressive she was being sort of you know female monarch at that time
0: and what is it you particularly enjoy about that
1: that is when i'm watching box sets i it's the only time i properly switch off i my brain is not anywhere else it's just chilling and enjoying
0: okay thank you tessa Mm -hmm. cook many thanks
1: no worries my pleasure